This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. Welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 92, The Paragon of Animals. Thank you for joining us as we make our way through the final season of Babylon 5. In our last episode of the podcast, uh, we spent some time talking about how we got sort of a bunch of new stuff in the first episode of the season, and then boom, that was all gone for the second episode. And while we did have that uh, Byron guy and his telepaths here, and they're new, uh, we have seen hide nor hair of Captain Lockley since her introduction. I'm just curious to if you two think that is weird or sort of season one-ish, or as Steven said, is Lockley the new telepath where she's in the opening <laughs> credits, but not in the show that much? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to very shamefacedly admit there was enough going on in the episode I didn't notice. I have to agree. I didn't either. It was only when Stephen compared her to the tele- the telepath, poor Lita, afterwards that that even occurred to me. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a it was a very political show. I didn't right. notice Lockley's absence because there wasn't anything about station operations happening here. The station wasn't at threat. Uh, the you know the the earth force military or whatever there wasn't anything needed you know they had to make a decision about how to use the rangers and she doesn't have an obvious role there so yeah i i honestly didn't miss her (laughs) all right well good neither did i (laughs) (laughs) but it is yes it is an opportunity for uh steven to go through his uh oh look who's not here trope Mm -hmm. (laughs) yep Paging Mary Kay Adams, paging Mary Kay Adams, Natoth number two on aisle two. Shiver. (laughs) Uh, Well, why don't we uh, why don't we dive into this Lockley List episode? Uh, What you would need to know going in is that the interstellar, the new interstellar alliance is just that it's new. The various races have worked together before to defeat powerful enemies like the Shadows, but they've never really cooperated on a day-to-day basis. Uh, One of Captain, excuse me, President Sheridan's first acts was to allow a group of rogue telepaths, led by a man named Byron, to form a colony on Babylon 5. And Sheridan also asked Narn Ambassador Jakar to write a declaration of principles for the new alliance. And that brings us to the Paragon of Animals in which most of the races refused to sign the Alliance's Declaration of Principles, with the Drazi being the most vocal about it. But, as it turns out, the Drazi haven't been very principled. The White Starfleet rescues a world near their border from raiders that were financed by the Drazi government itself. When this is revealed, everyone quickly jumps on board. Meanwhile, Garibaldi convinces Sheridan they should ask the rogue telepaths to do some covert intelligence gathering for the Alliance. They refuse until Lita makes the request. Then Byron agrees, but not before pointing out that Lita hasn't been treated very well. In the end, she decides she'd like to subscribe to his newsletter. So, <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we start with the telepaths? Uh, what do you guys think of Garibaldi's idea to use telepaths in a way that is expressly forbidden to Psychor, to human telepaths? Uh, very... Very obvious Garibaldi thinking. Uh, There is an advantage here, and Psychor has prevented them from using said advantage. And now we have a set of human telepaths that are not under their jurisdiction. So he's, you know, it was, he said it himself, you know, if if everyone else has guns, I'm going to make sure I have a gun too. 
Um, it's very practical of him. Um, given his past experience with Bester, uh, certainly he wants some kind of defenses around somewhere that he can call on and trust a slight bit more than average. Maybe if he trusts anybody. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, I do like how when they have the argument in the council chambers about this, uh, Garibaldi lampshades something that I'm not sure that we ever really discussed or was we ever really needed to in previous podcasts. But yeah, humanity is like the only the only group out there that has really created a psychor like organization that's sort of turned militaristic and scary and all this other stuff. The Mimbari and Centauri have done a better job of integrating telepaths into their communities and things like that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I I actually found that interesting, too, that that all of these other races have sort of just been using their telepaths in the background for covert intelligence. Um, And and yeah, it strikes me that and and freezing shadow vessels, of course. Yes, of course. And it does strike me as a very sort of human thing to do to be insecure enough to shove all of the telepaths into this monolithic organization and give them a bunch of rules and stuff. So, so yeah, the idea of, of using these, these rogue ones that got away, um, at first I was just like, (gasps) but then Garibaldi convinced me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's good at that. Uh, you know, I, I've been banging the drum, uh, for a while now about Babylon 5 trying to sort of shift into sort of real politic and that's sort of what this episode is all about when idealism versus doing what you need to do to get stuff done just sort of butt up against each other garibaldi's logic is sound and delin hates it when londo's right and all of those all of those little conversations that they have <laughs> I'm, spoiler alert i loved this episode to bits <laughs> I adored it. I thought I, I and I was shocked by it. I I am hard pressed to find things that were done poorly aside from a, a poor guest actor performance here and there. Um the the thing that I love the most about this episode is that it really is exploring the new status quo of Babylon 5. Um Sheridan figuring out how to be a president. Delin and Londo and Jakar and Sheridan all learning how to work with each other in a different way. Um, I loved some of the some of the scenes where they're talking together, um, hashing it out without really falling into arguments, um, doing practical things like organizing the food shipments from one planet because another planet needs them. Uh, and and then that shot at the end uh, with with just that goes trailing down the table um, as all of the other uh, races are signing and you know they're all looking happy and proud and like they've accomplished something. Um, yeah, th- th- there were some great bits there showing the new, like as you said, the new status quo forming. And and it's not exactly riveting action packed stuff, but it's world building. And mm-hmm. and not only is it world building, but these characters that we have known for three or four years are acting like themselves in new situations. They're sort of their sort of world building. And I love watching that. There's a great dramatic arc to the episode and all this other stuff as well, of which the telepaths are just, you know, a part of it. But 
it it all kicks off with Garibaldi making this making this suggestion. We we got to get our hands dirty. Let's see if we can work with these telepaths. And everything just sort of falls in place after that. And I this I I can't believe I'm saying this about a season five episode about the paragon of animals about oh, a, a about an episode <laughs> with a lot of Byron in it, but. When we were done watching this, I was like, I just got to talk. I can't talk to you about this yet, Shannon. I got to save it for the podcast. But God, I loved this episode. <laughs> yeah, there there was a huge amount of good stuff here. I mean, you know, um, and not just, you know, world building uh, with the between the characters, but within the characters. I mean, I noticed how, um, you know, Boxleitner was doing a really nuanced job of, you know, Sheridan fumbling with this new dynamic of having to be a president. And then the minute they wind up having to do a military operation, he's he's back. You know, he, he was like <laughs> taking charge and directing, um, you know, working with Delenn to uh, bring the White Star Fleet in. And, you know, it just felt like, you know, Sheridan was back in his element and loving it. You know, things like that. Um, and smaller things, too. I noticed this time around, Sheridan's quarters have gotten a lot more like a home uh, this <laughs> season. Uh, if you look at, you know, where he and Delenn are staying, it's like um, just more and more stuff keeps sort of appearing, you know, lamps and decorations and things like that. It does not look anything like his captain's quarters did in the previous seasons, you know, just using the using the scene, using the backdrops to um, enhance what's going on with these characters is really clever on whoever's part uh, of set direction, uh, director, JMS, everybody coming together to do it. Yeah, I hadn't even noticed that. But now that now that you say that, I, I'm thinking back to the episode. And, and, and yeah, I, it, it totally does. I even actually I did kind of notice a few things in the background being like, oh, that looks really cool. But it didn't. I, I guess it didn't ping for me that those things hadn't all been there before. But of course, they hadn't because it was a much more spare looking like it looked like a soldier's quarters a little bit mm -hmm. more. And now you're right. It looks it looks like a home. He's letting right, his know. hair down. Yeah. And it's like you wonder, you know, is that stuff that he has had in storage and he's pulled out mm -hmm. or is that stuff that Delenn and he that have purchased together yeah, or that she had <laughs> and brought it over? Well, you know, you know there is probably a Bed Bath & Beyond somewhere in uh, the Sokolo. <laughs> there, oh, there always is. There's always, always at least one. Uh, and speaking of Delenn, um, I, I quite like the fact that it was actually her idea to send all of the White Stars. Um you know, she, mm -hmm. he may be the the military commander, but he's he's asking her for advice, and she pipes up and says, you know, you know, why not why not send all of them? You know, make a really big point, or at least you know all the ones that they can afford to send, and and he does, and that's just I love I love them working together mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. as a couple, just the way I love all of the all of our main characters, as you said before, Chip, sort of working together and interacting together and. You know, you get Jakar and Londo acting like an old old married couple that are they're bickering a little bit, but are getting getting along well enough Go to repress someone to, else. Yeah, <laughs> to sit next to each other and just and and yeah, and you wonder like if Jakar wasn't so distracted trying to re 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 rewrite the uh, the Declaration of Principles, like you you wonder if they would be even more like the the, the magnificent Bickersons, but. Uh, but he's slightly distracted, so yeah. he's just throwing off the bon mot. Mm -hmm. His muse is speaking to him. I have a yeah, oh yeah, and and when he and the editors made sure that when Jakar says my muse is speaking to me, the credit written by J. Michael Straczynski appears on the screen. <gasps> I didn't notice that. Yeah. There was a that was another thing that I liked ah. about this episode that there was there's room again 
for meta, for for commentary. And most of it was really good this time. You know, throwing in things like that, all the writer jokes, seeing, you know, Stephen uh, writing the note to the um, Fallen Rangers family, and there's like a spell check option on the screen, Um, you know, just all sorts of, you know, little things getting, you know, because there's room for them now. And they're getting tucked in. And yeah. It's great. Uh, uh, along those lines, they took a long time with this with the scene where Jakar leaves the copy of the first page of the Declaration of Principles. They spent a long time on Sheridan unable to sleep. Hears the doorbell, gets up quietly, carefully closes the door so as not to wake up Delin. Goes, picks it up, sits down. You know. And it didn't feel like padding to me. It felt mm-hmm. like an illustration of a marriage at work kind of thing going on. Um, mm-hmm. I love the pacing of this episode. And I loved seeing, as as much as we've had some sort of classic uh, romantic tropes in Babylon 5 between Sheridan and Delenn, that's kind of the neatest part to me watching they they feel more like a real married couple in this episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about the pacing and, and it not feeling like padding and all that. Uh, I think Stephen, my Stephen, would give you a one-word reason for why that all works so well. I think I that know word, what that word is. It's Behar. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. As soon as his name appeared on the screen, Stephen just goes, I thought so. Um, <laughs> it, it, he really, really did knock it out of the park once again with, you know, wonderful performances and then, you know, the great camera angles. Stephen could not shut up about the uh, the one sequence or, you know, shot basically where you have the ranger that has come back in the destroyed White Star. And he's in MedLab, so he's on the MedLab table, and you have a shot of the camera, like, looking at him through the glass, and it pulls back so that then you see the reflections of Delenn and Stevens, uh, Dr. Franklin's faces in the mm-hmm. glass and just the backs of their heads. And, like, it just holds on that shot the entire time. And, as Stephen pointed out, there's no camera reflection at all. Mm-hmm. It gets I don't even, know how he did it. It gets it even did. better. That next scene where mm-hmm. Lita is scanning the ranger before he dies, and you see Delenn and Franklin through the glass. You see Lita reflected in the glass. You do not see the image of the the mental projection of the ranger standing next to his body. You do not see his reflection in the glass. It's yeah. Wow. Vehar wow. just and, and, and again, this isn't a severed dreams type of episode. This isn't a mm-hmm. big turning point plot kind of episode. This is and yet Vehar just puts his everything into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in smaller and sub- more subtle ways, because we get dissolves between scenes, which is not a, a common enough thing for Stephen, and zooms and, and just there's there's enough, you know, dynamism with with the camera work and the way that you move from scene to scene that it you don't necessarily notice it, but it feels like it's just rolling along smoothly. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you, Erica, a, a, a somewhat leading question. I want to circle <laughs> back to uh, that great conversation that Sheridan and Delenn had about what to do about the Raiders attacking the Enfili homeworld. And she suggests that 
uh, Garibaldi and Londo are right. It's time for a show of force. And she quotes Ducat saying that, uh, saying something about the benefits of terror. And then you have a fleet of white stars zooming off into battle. A fleet very much like the fleet that uh, appeared in the skies over Earth with the announcement of the Interstellar Alliance. Erica, I seem to recall you having a few qualms about that show of force back then. I did, because that was, that was an, from what we know, uninvited show of force before, you know, before this one single planet was uh, invited to join or not join. The Infili are asking for help. So this is a rescue mission. I have no problem gotcha. with them sending like a whole bunch of ships in to, you know, to make the point that when we're going to save somebody, we are going to save somebody. I feel like that's a, a very different thing. That's a good point. But but speaking of like the the need to to do that to make that point and to you know basically end up calling out the Drazi, it I I find this is it circles right back to what you were saying at the beginning, Chip. That this this episode really reflects you know some some real politics, some actual questions. I mean, it makes perfect sense that all of these disparate and various races aren't so excited to try to have you know this this new alliance legislate their morality their they're not wanting to to jump on board with that and uh, and require <laughs> require some coaxing, which I think is interesting. Yeah, um, the Drazi are kind of interesting. We don't know. We still at this point don't know a whole lot about them. I think my perception of the Drazi as uh, a, a culture is really colored, so to speak, by green drowsy <laughs> and puzzle and purple drowsy. Mm-hmm. Um, they've never come across as particularly uh, intellectual or spiritual. They're they're tough crocodiles, basically, is mm-hmm. what we've seen for the most part. It's a really tense scene towards the end when uh, Sheridan confronts the drowsy ambassador. As you're seeing the Drazi fleet heading towards their certain death, and you're sitting on the edge of your seat, hoping that the Drazi sees reason, because you don't actually want to see the White Star fleet decimate the Drazi, but you know that they've got it coming. You know, that stuff just Mm -hmm. sort of building and building and building. Uh, we don't have to see that fight. We don't even see much of the fight uh, with the White Stars taking out the Raiders. Um, mm-hmm. The pew, pew, pew is kind of an afterthought. <laughs> you know, we, we fill it mm-hmm. in in our heads. We know what it's in. And it's, it's going to be it's it's going to be cooler than any animation that uh, that Netter Digital could do in this one. Uh, but, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's again, it's that real politic that I keep coming back to. Um What's Jakar's line? The universe uh, moves on enlightened self-interest. That's what this episode's all about. Uh, But (laughs) while finding ways to have some really beautiful idealism in in, in the offing. Yeah, so speaking of idealism, uh, why don't we circle back to that that Byron guy um, (laughs) who, of course, you know, at first turns down turns down Garibaldi, turns him down flat, turns him down, you know, pretty rudely, but uh, you know, he's he's got a point and uh and then changes his mind when it's Lita who asks after after preaching at her a bit. 
a bit. <laughs> How do you guys feel about this Byron fellow? He's clearly being set up as, you know, something of a of a messianic leader, uh, I think, with, um, you know, the idea that, you know, if we can just find our own little home away from everything else, we can, you know, we, we will, you know, we will work, we will do what we need to do to support ourselves. Um, just everybody leave us alone. And I think he was, there was never any way that Garibaldi was going to be able to convince him. Garibaldi is not a telepath. Garibaldi is not one of them. Garibaldi may be somewhat, you know, sympathetic to their situation, but Garibaldi is also looking um, to use them, Frank, you know, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, he is looking for people to fit, to solve his problems that he currently has. I feel like it's almost a little bit on the... Uh the cruel side to to use what he sees in Garibaldi's mind against him, you know, about how he, you know, it's very clear that you were you were rehearsing what you were going to say and what you thought I would say and what you your counter arguments would be. And you've probably lost a lot of relationships because of those uh, those qualities. And like the, that was a great Jerry Doyle, Jerry Doyle moment because his reaction mm-hmm. to that was was not yeah. over the top, but you could tell it hit him. Yeah. But again, I think this is Byron using the opportunity to make his point. Um, you know, the, the first thing that he points out is the fact that, you know, it's not that telepaths go looking to dig into your head. It's that mm-hmm. telepaths can't keep you out of their heads without a huge amount of restraint. So I, you know, yeah. I think, you know, I think Byron was trying his best to really, to really drive home for Garibaldi just how little he understands the situation from the telepath point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been noticing a lot uh, in the last couple of years on Twitter with all of the conversations that we're having about harassment and politics and marginalized people, the phrase emotional labor, when, um, for example, women who have been the victims of sexual harassment being required by dudes in their mentions on Twitter uh, or having to explain themselves. That conversation between Byron and Garibaldi, Byron is letting Garibaldi know that he is not going to... The very act of blocking Mundane's thoughts is emotional labor, and he's just kind of sick of it. Uh, When when Byron and his telepaths came onto the station um, in No Compromises two episodes ago, they were playing nice because they needed some space. Now that they've got some space, they're being more real, or at least Byron is being more real. And he's, you know, he, he, he and his people have been through some stuff, and he doesn't have a lot of patience. I read a synopsis of this episode before rewatching it, and I read the scene about Byron telling Lita to sit down and then kicking the chair away. And I was like, "Oh, this is going to be this. This is going to be this is going to squick me out." And it actually didn't. The way that it was performed and shot by Mike Vehar, you know, he is not. He doesn't kick the chair at her. He doesn't uh, make a huge violent display about it. He is he is surprising and stunning and and harsh. Um, but you see so many you you see so many activists. He he and his telepaths thus far. We haven't heard anything from them in this episode, but 
Yeah, because nobody else is allowed to speak. Because, yeah, because they're all extras. Uh, but uh, but yeah, they are they are believable. They are believable to me. They are behaving like uh, a marginalized community that's trying to get things. That's trying to look after themselves when a whole lot of people around them, including Garibaldi, want to either use them or are scared of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing he says that's that's wrong, although he does make a point of referring to telepaths as better, as better than mm-hmm. mundanes, as better than humans. And that's like he, he really kind of had me until that moment. And then I was so and maybe that's just because I'm biased because I am a, an inferior non-telepath. <laughs> but I was just sort of like, oh, he he went there with the uh, with the actual superiority thing. And I don't know if that was like a, t- a calculated calculated move to um to try to woo lita uh, a, a little bit more or if that's <laughs> i suspect that's really how he feels because he did seem like he was pretty raw in that sequence like you know the kicking the chair moment was was a, a guy to me seemed like a guy who has like you said chip really had enough of of being treated poorly and he sees you know someone who is like him who has been treated poorly so so much that that they're they're you know just falling for it and he's mad as hell and doesn't want to take it anymore and he takes it out on that poor chair yeah that poor poor chair to me to me it felt kind of like this is a lesson he's tried to teach before yes i think i think this Mm -hmm. is something that he has done before with other people who have maybe you know he he've taken them in because they ran from the psychor you know whatever the circumstance but you know Showing Lita that even though she herself is supposedly outside of the Psy Corps, except in name only, um, and that she she's wouldn't done necessarily know that. that. Well, but that's right. She's wearing the badge. Point, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but still, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, if he and of course, if he's like picking up all these things off the station because he's not trying to filter anything, you know, he may have an idea of the uh, fact that mm-hmm. she has had importance to this station for a while. Um, but yeah, to to show her that, you know, you may think that you are operating on your own, but you still react like somebody who is um, subjugated. So yeah. I, that, that, that really felt like something that he has done a number of times to recruit people in. I love the th- I love that the arc that we have noted um, in the last uh, in the last year or so about how Lita is kind of taken for granted is mm-hmm. really surfacing in a in a big way here. Uh, that yeah. co- that conversation before Garibaldi finally wears her down, and you know she asks him, "Did they tell you they were tired of working for mundanes? Did they tell you to go to hell?" Yeah, mm-hmm. no, there isn't a problem. Then she leaves. You know, you know she's she is standing up for herself. And that last scene right. there, Shannon, where uh, you where yeah, it is kind of this great moment that the League of the it's not the League of Non-Aligned Worlds. Movie. The, <laughs> the, the, Alli- Alliance. the, the <laughs> Alliance members are signing the principles and mm-hmm. things are starting to come together. And, and there's Lita on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. And that feels very, very intentional. Yeah. And then she and, goes visit Vi- Byron. Yeah. And that was one thing in the earlier that that sort of jarred me a little bit um, that um, 
you know, Byron's here accusing Lita of, you know, like, you know, running like, you know, the good little dog, you know, running. And, you know, he, you know, I don't know that he was privy and listening into Garibaldi's conversation with Lita. But yeah, she started out, you know, standing up for herself. You know, Garibaldi asks her how she's doing. And she says, you know, it's been hell. I'm, I'm not in a good mood. Um, and as you said, she takes Garibaldi to task for um, coming to her. Although I, I was kind of amused. I, I guess it's some, there's something there of a friendship or something because, um, you know, Garibaldi says, you know, I'll never ask you for anything again until the next time I ask you. I mean, he, he's up front about the fact that, you know, yes, that we need you. We, we have asked for your help before. We're going to ask for your help again because you have thing, you are capable of things we're not. Um, I, I kind of think that deep down she appreciates the honesty of that, at least, even if it just, you know, drives her up a wall. Well, yeah, it does convince totally. her to ask. True. Mm -hmm. It does. Also, I think the other thing that convinces her to ask is the moment that she that her performance sort of softens a little bit is when Garibaldi is saying, don't do it for me. Do it mm -hmm. for, for Delenn and Sheridan because they're trying to do this good thing. Right. And they're trying so hard and they want to make it work. So it's it's, you know, when he sort of goes to the appeal, you know, to it's for the greater good. That's the moment that she really, I think, starts to starts to turn. And I kind of I appreciate that because, you know, Lita's a good person. She always has been. And and I, I like that that she is is willing to use her her talents and stuff to to help overall. But it's it's also very interesting to see her sort of realize how often you know she's she has been used for this and how little she gets in return. I mean, at the end when you have Sheridan saying to Lita, you know, you saved a lot of lives today. Thank you. And like, and that's that's kind of it. You can sort of see it in her eyes. Like, yeah, I did. And this is like, I'm literally getting just a thank you and, and a good day, sir, uh, which, of course, sends her back off to Byron, um, who, I mean, and speaking of Byron, there's one other thing that I wanted to point out about him. And that's the fact that he actually knew about the, the trap that was mm -hmm. being set for the White Star way, way before. He doesn't say anything about it until Lita actually comes. So, I mean, he's he's sort of playing the politics game, too. He's got oh, yeah. information that he knows that they want, um, that oh, you know, yeah. there are many, many lives on the line, and he's he's willing to to use that as a, as a bargaining chip. Yeah, if she had not come to him, there would have been some way that he would have brought that information to them when they needed it most. Yeah, he... Oh. Maybe or maybe not. Maybe he would have just just been like, "That's mundane's problem. It's not my problem." No, I, just, I, no, because I, I, he's situating himself to, you know, make themselves valuable to the alliance or valuable to Babylon Five. Um, he, he's trying to put them, his telepaths, in a position where he can control how they are used, and that is, you know, indebting, making the alliance indebted to him and his telepaths is one of the ways to do it. Yeah, I, I, I'm with Erica, though. I don't I see any evidence that he was actually going to do that until uh, Lita talked to him, because mm -hmm. is it his problem? Yeah, um, I sort of got the impression that he was he he really does just want to have this tiny little corner of the station to keep his people away from everybody else and just stay out of it. And the only reason that he changes his mind at all is because Lita uh, comes and 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 I think you know he sees he sees her as somebody that he wants to like you said he's done this he's done this song and dance many times he's taught people he's taught telepaths before and I think he he wants to he wants to have the opportunity to to teach Lita in the same way. And this is the way to do it. I, I think he would probably not have not have said anything. Just a guess. We'll never know. All right. Well, any anything else you guys want to cover before 
before I do my quickie Steven check-in and head to spoiler space. We are one. <laughs> Not yeah. we are Groot, but we are one. <laughs> yeah, I, I mentioned the, the, the meta before. The, the, the play on writing. This, the, it felt like just JMS was taking the opportunity of Jakar writing the declaration to just have fun at his own expense and to have fun... Uh, with other things, we mentioned the muse speaking with his uh, writer's credit showing up. Um, I th I'm trying to remember if it's Londo or whoever it is that says writers, they're a sensitive bunch. Um, you know, all of these little things that get uh, shoved in were uh, really amusing. Yep, I I definitely appreciated, yeah. appreciated all of that. I, I think Stephen did too. I think he laughed a little. I love what Jakar does in this episode, and I love mm -hmm. the Declaration of Principles. I think it's undercut slightly by the gag at the end, where the new, where the we never get to see the real version of it because this is the second draft, and then Jakar snaps it all back and says, "I've got a better draft, and we'll go there." Uh, but <laughs> it it is it is beautiful writing. JMS is really good at this sort of prose poetry kind of thing uh, when the circumstance calls for it. Since this episode aired, you know, there have been fans that have used the Declaration of Principles, re reworded it a little bit, perhaps to take out the names of the alien races and things like that. It is a very beautiful, idealistic statement. On the one hand, it's sort of a big flag that JMS plants to portray the Interstellar Alliance and Sheridan and Delenn and Jakar as the good guys. On the other hand, you know, especially especially the way world and national politics are going these days, you know, I like having a very powerful lyrical statement that reminds us that no matter the blood, no matter the skin, we are one. You know, it's it's powerful stuff. I really appreciate it. It sure is. All right. Well, I will do my quick Stephen check-in after the episode was done. He uh, he said it was good. He liked it. Um, he he liked the infili. He said it was you know it's rare that we get to just see a whole new race of people pop up. Mm -hmm. So he he enjoyed that. Um, and yeah, and I think the thing that stuck with him the most was the telepaths. He was just like telepaths. He's like, I don't know if I should trust them or not. This Byron seems like a nice fellow. Or not. <laughs> uh, Steven says he does look like he's in Queensryche, um, which I believe he has said before. It was um, the 90s. Yep. Yeah. And then Steve, speaking of the 90s, Steven said, you know, it looks like he's polyamorous. And based on mid-90s television morals, that might mean he's not to be trusted. Uh, which I'm like, wow, you're you're diving deep. Um he, but Stephen also noticed that that Byron calls calls people mundanes, although that is a term that we've heard before. And Stephen has just he's just intrigued by how complex um, this this all is. Like it seems like he wants to work together uh, with the staff on the station, but is also resentful of telepath's treatment. And just I think I just think Stephen is is interested to see how this continues to play out. Uh, and it it was so well directed. It was so well directed. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Stephen must have been giddy. He was. He really was. Yep. He just, you know, there'd be moments where he'd be like, dissolve! Like, just <laughs> randomly yelling, you know. Yep. And it was, it was, it was great. So, so yeah. Well, uh, time to assign homework. And uh, your homework for the next time is A View from the Gallery. And uh, in the meantime, do come and say hi to us on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide. And you can also join in on some stellar conversation 
pun intended, <laughs> at b5audioguide.com, where we have threads that are chock full of spoilers, as well as spoiler-free zones for you newbies. And if you are a newbie who is avoiding spoilers, now is the time to take your leave, because we are about to head through a jump gate into spoiler space. So, Lita really is going to subscribe to uh, Byron's newsletter. Yeah, oh, she's some. a good person for now. Well, for and, now. And, and and she, I mean, arg- arguably, mm-hmm. she's a she's a good person going forward. Although we're never we're we're never going to actually see her final fate. But, um, yeah, she's she's on the verge of having had enough of being pushed around. Hmm. Yeah, she's she's so primed for cult indoctrination. You know, like many of the things that Byron says are absolutely right. You know, telepaths have gotten a very, very raw deal, but he still he still comes off like a cult leader. Yeah, I'm not sure I'll go that far just yet. Although, you know, the you know, they are kind of touchy feely, polyamory, hippie kind of uh, telepaths, telehips. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Although like I I want to be clear, I have no problem with with the touchy feeliness or the polyamory. It's it's no, more the way that that like you guys sort of pointed out that it seems like he's talked people into this before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they have, you know, they have been through a lot. You know, they they are seriously marginalized, seriously mm-hmm. feared. Um they're going to they're going to cling to each other, you know, it makes it, it and that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, they seem more believable to me now than they did when I first watched Babylon 5 mm-hmm. almost 20 years ago. Um, the, 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 the dynamics just seem to work for me. Um, but yeah, that that mistrust is just going to become more and more apparent. And uh, Stephen is picking up on what JMS is putting down about the telepaths. <laughs> yep. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's only two episodes in. Byron is a punchline among people who really hate season five. And mm. I, I haven't found the tipping point that makes him into this despised character or anything like that uh i'm not there yet i think it's the song oh god the song yeah (laughs) it's the singing and i i cannot i like no i can't wait is the wrong phrase i i dread (laughs) i deeply dread getting to that part of that episode and watching it with steven because he is going to hate it so much (laughs) i think in the i think in defense of the song I think it's intended to be a pretty banal, awful song. Mm-hmm. It's 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 intended to be one of those uh, cliched, cliched kind of things. You know, it's it's not up to the level of "We Shall Overcome." That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But even but even even those songs are you know kind of basic and repetitive and sim- simply political. But you're you're mm-hmm. you're probably right. It's probably the song that made that that turned everybody off. Could be, could be. Yeah. Uh, but um, other other future looking things. I'm I don't remember at the moment whether we get any follow up fallout whatever from discovering that the Drazi have been such jerks um, huh. after being such good allies for so long. Um, I didn't have a chance to say it pre spoiler, but you know, on the one hand, 
you know, JMS didn't take the easy out of throwing some random aliens in to play that part. Um, mm -hmm. he, he made them, you know, people who have been allies for a long time. Um, you know, on the other hand, I don't remember any fallout. So <laughs> as a matter of fact, it's going to get really ugly towards the end of the season. The Drock manipulating the Centauri, mm. um, you know, uh, the Centauri will be doing some belligerent stuff uh, under under the Regent's direction. And the Regent's got a keeper slapped on his neck. And it's going to be the Drazi and the Narn who are going to be the most fiercely advocating to push back against uh, Centauri Prime. They're going to be responsible mm -hmm. for basically firebombing uh, Centauri Prime in retaliation. Um, okay. So, so not only is there not real pushback to the Drazi, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know they're they're sort of they are sort of being forced to sign the declaration of principles because they've been exposed and now they're going to have to behave and, and all this mm -hmm. other stuff but when the shoe's on the other foot and it's the centauri's turn to pay the price uh it's going to be the drazi who are going to be helping um helping fight back and that's just kind of Two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back for about a million years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Any Anything else? The buddy cop stuff between Jakar and Londo is really starting to blossom. I love how their relationship <laughs> has improved since Londo apologized, and it's just mm -hmm. only going to keep going. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, it makes me so sad to see Londo being such a constructive part of the new alliance right, right. now. Right. Yeah. And then he's going to have to accept the Keeper, and he's going to be a pariah for the next 20 years until Jakar puts him out of his misery. You know, mm -hmm. um, this is going well. Um, uh, th th this, is, this is going well in terms this of... This is going this, too well. Well, <laughs> that. But, um, <laughs> but again, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling uncharacteristically optimistic about the fifth season based on these three stories. At the moment, Sheridan's getting it right, it feels like. That I think that's go I think that is going to change, um, <laughs> but this this episode just feels so full of possibility, and it's not going to be too long before things get kind of messy. So that you know mm -hmm. that that'll be the thing that I'll be watching. Mm -hmm. And um, structurally, we're going to have quite a shift uh, for the next episode. Yes, yes, bottle, oh, bottle time. God, <laughs> um, I. I have no doubt that Stephen is going to despise next week's episode. Yeah, I, th I think mm. you're probably right. Although, who knows? Maybe maybe he will just totally surprise us and he'll think it's great for some reason. I, I am I dreading know. it. I am <laughs> dreading it because we had this conversation about the deconstruction of Falling Stars. Stephen and I were at complete cross purposes on whether it was a self-indulgent episode but mm -hmm. but a view from the gallery, I believe, is going to be the triple Sunday with hot fudge and nuts of self indulgent episodes. But it's not going to taste anywhere near as good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well put. One other looking forward thing, um, I found it interesting that they um brought in the mention of Bester, uh, 
since yeah. Bester will be popping up again uh, in episode oh, yeah. five. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, not only did, you know, not only mentioning him, period, but mentioning him in this really awful kind of psychotic context mm-hmm. of somebody who deliberately goes looking to to be there and experience death through the telepath link. Yeah. And I really wanted to say something before spoiler, but I stopped myself, Erica, when you're talking about how Byron refers to them as mundanes and says we're better. Mm-hmm. Byron's ex-psychop. Byron yeah. is ex-bester oh, right. partner. Byron's had experience in thinking of himself as in as uh, enough telepaths as better than normal humans mm-hmm. that's right see i had f- completely forgotten that mm-hmm. and we i mean byron is committed to nonviolence, and we see that play out he when when his telepaths start taking hostages he's appalled but mm-hmm. he's still bitter and he's still got enough of that conditioning to think of himself as superior that you know mm-hmm. there's there's a lot there's a lot going on with Byron. Um, I'm going mm-hmm. to be sad when Stephen decides that he's annoying. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe with with the distance, you know, between now and '90s television, Stephen will have more patience for that type of character than we did, you know, at the time, mm-hmm. because he just felt. I mean, one of the I think the core problems for me is just he felt so damn cheesy, and. Now, like the farther away we get from from old style television, like it's all cheesy. So maybe his particular flavor of cheese will blend into the melting pot of all the rest of the cheese, and he just won't notice it as much as we did. Yeah, I don't know. And I think you know, oh, Erica, the time. metaphors, the metaphors—you just ladled them in there. Yeah, but but also, okay. I mean, you know, we're we're kind of back into, as you said earlier, Chip. You know, the the current climate of the world. The, the marginalized, the story of, you know, people trying to fight their way out of um, out of the corners they've been forced into, that resonates more in general in mm-hmm. a way that it might not have back in the 90s when, you know, everything wasn't like right there, right in front of you. Twitter wasn't keeping you up to the minute, uh, things like that. I think there was more distance mm-hmm. then with, with these situations than there is now. Yeah, that's true. Steven might have more more sort of patience and, and resonance with, with mm-hmm. them because of that. All right. Well, on that note, I will I will thank everybody for listening, and I do hope you will join us next time for that uh, not so good tasting hot fudge Sunday that is a view from the gallery. Uh, and until then, this is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham, and you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon Five. I'm moderating that episode. I'm going to think positive. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good plan. Good plan. <laughs> Psych yourself up. <laughs>